I wanted to make it kind of like normalized. So if I can share my mistakes that are, you know, that one was like a bigger dollar amount than most people will be in a position to, to make, I'm going to share my mistake, even though, you know, I'm the boss or whatever. I made a big one. I can put a dollar amount to it. So when you are thinking about like, oh, should I do this? It might cost us, you know, some much smaller amount of money. You feel more, more able to take a chance of a smart risk or whatever. We're always guessing in business, right? You're never sure. Hello, world. Welcome to another episode of Outside the Valley, a podcast by Art. The remote hiring platform that helps you hire remote software engineers and teams easily. Here we interview remote startup leaders, remote work advocates, and workers of distributed teams who thrive outside of Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Jovian Gautama. Today we have Fred Parada, the co-founder and CEO of Tortuga Backpacks. It's a very exciting episode for me because we don't talk a lot to non-software startups in this podcast. So yeah, I'm very excited for this one. And in this episode, uh, we talked about the challenges of developing a physical product when you are a 100% distributed. It's not easy and it involves a lot of, you know, uh, sending stuff to each other uh, using FedEx. We also talked about Fred's million dollar mistake. This is a literal uh, million dollar mistake here and how he encouraged his teammates to take risks based on the mistake that he made. We also covered and discussed about how to build a 10x work environment, especially in the remote team. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do consider leaving a review on iTunes. This will help other people who are on similar path as you to find a podcast. Now, without further ado, here we go, Fred Parada. Hello, Fred. Hi, thank you for having me. Really excited to have you here. As I just mentioned before we start recordings, I'm always interested in business owners or startup founders that do uh, physical products. So to start off, can you share a bit more about your past life at Google and how you started Tortuga Backpacks? Sure. I was at Google for about a little over three years. And towards the end, I did, uh, they have a program that it's kind of like study abroad, but work abroad. So I was abroad for three months and kind of decided I was going to use that as this is my good, this is good timing, good excuse for me to leave. I'll leave on a nice note. I get to take a little trip. So uh, yeah, came back from that and decided to kind of make it official. We had been working on the company at that point for, for about a year. Um, from the original idea for Tortuga. Right. And uh, yeah, we were far enough along. We didn't really know what we were doing, but we were far enough along that I, I was kind of ready to quit. <laughs> the business wasn't far along enough to support me yet, but the timing yeah. kind of felt right. So uh, yeah, that was when I sort of jumped in and went not full-time, but kind of half-time or so, some consulting and, and freelance work at the same time. In 2009, my business partner, Jeremy, and I went on a trip to to Europe, just kind of a typical backpacking trip. Early in the recession, tickets were very cheap, so we decided to take a vacation. Um, and before the trip, we we tried to find the right backpacks, and just we ended up with the bags everyone carries, which is a kind of big hiking bag. Um, but when we went on the trip, we realized that those weren't really great for travel. 
So it just became a thing that we would talk about. We'd complain about the bags, talk about what we would do better. Uh, and we had both just read the four hour work week before that. So the idea kind of became like, we have this, we have this problem and product idea. We have this book that we can follow the blueprint of. Uh, and it wasn't that simple, but it at least that got us started and we kind of went from there. Yeah. Uh, I just want to go on record to say that the hiking back is so ugly. Like, <laughs> I just want to go record and say that because I think everyone should know about this. And um, if you have the option to not do that when you're traveling, just don't. So yeah, so it's kind of like it's it's kind of accidental, right? You were in kind of like, oh, I want to build a remote company. And back then, I think 2009, it wasn't really a thing to build a remote a company. You just uh, do it out of necessity. It works for you and your business partner, and you did that. So. I'm always curious about companies that make physical products, especially when their business partners or teammates are not in the same space with them. In your opinion, what were the main, or I'll say, what are the main challenges of running a remote company that makes physical products? Yeah, the all of the big challenges we we still face and will probably always face to some degree. The for the hard part for us, we manufacture in Asia right now. So there's a bit of distance, language barrier, et cetera right. there. That'll probably always be the case. But really the thing, and that would be the case even if we had a headquarters and a, a home office. But the thing that remote makes difficult is for us, mostly the product development, right? If if we had an office, we would talk to our factory, have them make some samples that we had designed. They would send us the samples or we'd go there, whatever. And then we'd sit down and look at it together in person as a product team. So uh, our designer, we have a product marketer. So, you know, we have uh, four or five of us on those calls. But if we could, we would all sit around, look at the exact same sample and say like, oh, let's move this over here. This part doesn't work, et cetera. But we can't do that. So we do the best we can. Some of it we do over video. Some of it we just defer to our industrial designer rather than doing it as a group for you know, more straightforward changes. And then some stuff we just do the hard way and ship bags around between different people. So I might get a box wow. of four or five samples and, and kind of go through it, make my notes, maybe test one of the bags and then send it to another team member. So sometimes there's not a good answer. You know, the money that we're saving on an office, we spend with FedEx instead. But there are some times when you want everyone to see the bags and see it in person. And it's not always convenient to time it around uh, a retreat or sometime to work together in person. So FedEx it is. Right. Now, as you mentioned, it's, it almost feels like for other startups that building software, you almost kind of like take it for granted. Like it's software. You actually can uh, interact with the product on screen, you know, using stuff like Envision and whatnot. But for physical product and for us software makers, it just feel like, uh, we, oh, it's hard, but we don't never realize that it's harder f- to people who make physical products. Right. So the next thing I want to talk about is you wrote this post uh, titled "A Place to Do Epic Work," and this is a topic that I'm quite interested in because you know David Heinemeier Hansen from Basecamp, he talks about not finding the 10x programmer or 10x team member, but you have to create a 10x environment. 
And for us, like ARC, when it comes to, you know, finding people to help hire the best people, we definitely understand that finding the right people is, is really hard. And then you got to attack it from both ways. You have to find, you know, find the right people. And also you have to make your company a great place to work. So I want to, I'd love to dive deeper into this. Can you share a bit more about this piece and your insights on this? Yeah, you make a good point that it's, uh, you want to find the right people and create that culture, right? It's not, it's not as simple as doing one or the other. You can't just take a bunch of talented people and hope something good happens out of it. You also have to have to think about the culture. So for us, we try to lean into some of the advantages that we have as a remote company. So because we're not in a big shared office with, you know, an open office plan and all the distractions that come with that, that the the Basecamp guys have talked about a lot too, um, you know, it makes it much easier to really focus on and do deep work. So if you want to be able to like block out all the noise, focus on a design problem or whatever it is that you're working on and just knock out, you know, have multiple hours even, just no interruptions, no meetings, no one yelling on the other side of the cubicle or, you know, talking about whatever. A remote company, and particularly Tortuga, is a great place to do that. So for the, the people in, I think pretty much any role, but, you know, particularly creative roles, uh, I think are often the people um, who mention the stuff and, you know, complain about it or, or raise these issues. Programmers too, that's another common job where people get distracted, where, you really do need big blocks of uninterrupted time to do really good work. Remote is a great place to do that. And so that's something that we, we really try to play up uh, both in how we operate in the culture and not over scheduling with meetings and stuff. And then when we do post job listings or on our about page and jobs page, we put extra emphasis on that so that people who, you know, have experienced the opposite in some open office kind of culture, they can see like, oh, this actually is what I want because like that's the environment where I think I'll be more productive. So that's kind of the, one of the big ones that we think about there. Um, and then the, that one's easy with remote. The one that is harder with remote is keeping everyone coordinated and kind of on the same page and moving right. in the same direction. That's part of the, that 10X culture, but being remote makes that one harder, I would say. Right. Got it. So you also wrote in the piece that there are three rules that you consider when building a place for epic work. The first one is autonomy, and second one is gentle guidance, and the third is remove roadblocks. I'm curious about the gentle guidance part. Can you elaborate more on that? And from your personal experience, how did you apply this principle to your uh, when you're leading Tortuga? Yeah, the, I guess all of those bullet points have kind of informed how we think about coaching, which that's kind of how we talk about management at Tortuga is coaches doing coaching. Um, so all of those kind of apply to how we think about coaching, which is that a, a coach isn't just someone who is really good at doing the work and now gets to tell everyone else how to do the work. Uh, right. Their job is actually to, to help those people be great at what they do and coach them in that, not just tell them what to do. So that goes back to the, the gentle guidance that I was talking about where, you know, the, if someone is, let's say doing something incorrectly, pursuing some work that we just don't think is the right way to do it. Like right. the way to correct that is not me to say that's wrong. Do it this way instead. Like 
your way is wrong, my way is right, so do it my way. What we want to do instead is talk more about why it's being done a certain way and like how we're trying to achieve a goal, right? So you want to reiterate like, like this is the goal, maybe it's an OKR, maybe it's a company-wide goal for the quarter, something like that. And then it's more about asking questions and telling them what to do. So, you know, with this goal in mind, how are we going about it? Why are we doing it that way? And sort of probing. Um, sometimes maybe that person does know what's right and the coach mm-hmm. was wrong. They didn't know uh, or they didn't have all the information. Maybe it's more more likely. And if, if that person is kind of uh, going in the wrong direction or off base and, and needs some guidance, that'll usually become obvious through asking the questions, right? Like, you even without trying to ask leading questions sometimes just asking the questions they kind of realize like oh yeah maybe i'm not not thinking about it the yes. right way maybe they miss some you ask a question they realize like oh i didn't even think about that part of it yeah. um and hopefully as uh between the two people or you know individually they can kind of figure out what's wrong and come to the right conclusion themselves rather than just being told like do this instead yeah exactly sometimes when you ask something you, we actually just need to voice it out loud and then to hear your own thought and then in mid-sentence you're probably like okay this is actually pretty stupid like never mind something <laughs> like that it happens to me a couple of times you mentioned about the term coach and coaching so is this the word that you use in in tortuga like internally yeah we we stole that one from help scout they uh, uh i guess they I do that and they had a blog post about how they think about players and coaches as like an individual contributors. Yeah, it's interesting like how even this slight change of um, terms can change the the mentality of the whole company. So for instance, I talked to Laura Roger from Meet Edgar a while back. So instead of managers or lead, they use advocates. So when you're talking like marketing advocates, basically these marketing advocates are responsible to help the ideas of the team member to work with them and then advocate these ideas to up top. And so it, it is super interesting. Now, so it's also kind of show the culture of the company, right? In the current form, how would you describe Tortuga's current culture? And if you look back from your entrepreneurial journey, how did it get shaped this way? Yeah, I, I think the culture today actually kind of goes back to... Um, what you're quoting in the, that blog post where we try and focus on autonomy, some of the gentle guidance and that, uh, that sort of coaching uh, philosophy, I think informs a lot of the rest of the culture. Um, so we're still a, still a small team, still mostly flat organization, 12 people today. Um, so yeah, we do kind of focus on that, on that autonomy quite a bit. Um, and again, that's another thing where being a small team and a remote team makes it kind of easier for us to do. So yep. you want to lean into your strengths. If we were, you know, a few hundred people, maybe those need to be different. So we'll think about it a bit differently. But in the early days, uh, you know, there's not really a culture. You're just trying to make something happen and get things done. And you're certainly not thinking about the, about culture too much. But yeah, we were coming from a place where the business kind of started inspired by four-hour work week, And, you know, we didn't want to be showing up at an office every day. We were, uh, my co-founder and I were living in two different cities when we started. So some of this was just like, we started doing things in a way that the two of us could make work on the side, you know, at nights and weekends, things like that. And then we started working with some contractors for specific work, like industrial design, uh, 
things like that, building our first website. So by the time a few years later that we actually started to, to hire people full-time or part-time to like actually be a core part of the team, we'd been working remotely, the two of us and everyone else, the freelancers that we work with for a few years. So it just felt natural to like keep doing that. It didn't feel like, okay, now we're starting for real. So now we get an office and get everyone in there. We just kind of kept doing what had worked. And by that time, 2013, 14, there was like Buffer and Basecamp and some other companies were right. talking about this more. So it felt like, oh, we're not crazy. Like we're doing it <laughs> yeah. and it works. So yeah. therefore we are allowed to do it. So, so. Uh, that's when we first started to like define the stuff and kind of put it into uh, it. into the core values. Got it. So the turning point, not the turning, so the, when you realize that a lot of companies like Buffer Basecamp try to do this and then you're like, okay, let's try to codify these things that everyone kind of knows in the company and make it more uh, official, I guess. You yeah, know? there's something to, uh, I don't know, just seeing other people doing it that lets you know, like, even if you have the same idea, like you can think, oh, is this, am I crazy? Is this going to work right. or not? But if you see other people that are, their businesses are working, they're doing it remotely, then I don't know, it shows you that like, you're not the only one. It, it is real. It can work. And it was the same thing with the four hour work week, right? Like yep. we didn't know how to start this kind of business, but here was a book, this guy, he was selling uh, supplements or pills or something, but you know, he kind of laid out how to work with suppliers, how to do everything. So it became like, all right, we have this book. So therefore we can do it. We just follow this. So that's also why now I try to do a lot of, um, I don't know, writing, talking about what we do because I know seeing other companies like really helped us when we were starting. So hopefully we can kind of like pay that forward or backwards or whatever direction to other companies <laughs> starting out. Right. Right. And so I want to move on to the hiring uh, part a little bit. So in one of your articles, you mentioned that hiring right is the key for a successful remote company. And of course, the culture, since it's highly related uh, to trust. And can you share a bit more about Tortuga's hiring process? Yeah, we, it's something we think about a lot and have spent a lot of time on. Even it though, is hard. Even though we're a small company. Um, yeah. I feel like our, our margin for error is a little smaller, just being a small company, you know? So it feels like more pressure on each hire, you know? Like if you're 10 people and you hire someone, that's 10% of the company's new, you know? So yeah. most of what we do for, uh, for our hiring is uh, kind of pulled from this book called Who by Jeff Smart. And yeah, we, I don't even remember where we initially saw it recommended, but have taken a lot of lessons from that book. So one of the first things they talk about and really focus on is not writing a job description where it's like, you know, here are the tasks that you have to do, but they call it a job scorecard and it's focused around outcomes. So it's not like, you know, manage these ads, be in charge of this. It's about like the actual results. So say three to five kind of results, like bigger things uh, you want out of that role in the, you know, maybe six months, next six months or something like that. Right. So that when you interview people, you can kind of score them against that, like a report card and see, all right, do I think they can achieve this outcome? You know, it's one thing if they've done the job before, but it's another one if they've like had similar outcomes or like achieved similar results. Right. So it's a little easier to, to judge people against that versus manage this account or be in charge of this thing where like if they've done a similar job, anyone, I guess, could be in charge of it. But 
Are they yeah. going to get the results that you want for the business? Um, so that that's kind of the starting point in, in writing it. And then when we when we interview, we do two to three interviews. It kind of depends on on the role. Um, but usually there's at least one that's about uh, work history and their skills. So really just going back through past roles, like what they accomplished there, what was hard about the job, like highs and lows, things like that. Uh, and then we do a whole separate interview around, we call it value alignment, but similar to culture fit. Um, and that one is like much less about work history and more just getting to know that person history outside of work, how they like to work, what they're looking for in their next role, things like that to make sure that they'll be a good fit. How they want to work is a good fit with, with how we work. And then sometimes we have an extra interview depending on the, if the role is really specific, sometimes we'll also have another member of the team in a similar role interview. Uh, if, you know, for example, like I didn't feel qualified for some of the roles to evaluate the people's work history as well. So brought in other members of the team to help with some of those. Mm, right. So the value alignment stage, I always find this interesting. I think Help Scout has the same stage. Is there any particular question that you always ask in this value assignment stage? Like, yeah, we have, most of them are pretty consistent. Sometimes we'll tweak it a little bit depending on the role, but most of them are just kind of understanding like uh, a little bit about the person's like, travel history, work history, there's a little bit of work stuff in there. And also kind of around remote work and, and how they work, even if they haven't worked remotely before. So uh, we kind of want to understand like, why are they interested in this role? Like the company, the role itself in working remotely and kind of see like what they're, what they're after there and make sure that's a good fit for how we work. Because, you know, most people, it's their first remote role. It's often very different than you know, past uh, roles in an office. So we want to make sure, like, what's, what are they after? And are they going to be able to get that at Tortuga? Like, can we, does this work from both sides kind of things? Got it, got it. So we also talk about, you look for self-starters, right? With high standard that people are motivated that work well in remote team. And one of the signals is if you've worked remotely before, there's a high chance you're pretty good at that. Other than remote work experience, um, any other signals that you're looking for to see if this guy was probably a pretty good remote worker? Yeah, the uh, that's having remote work experience is, is a helpful one, but most people don't. So have to exactly. look for other signals, right? So for us, we, we look for initiatives. So that could be in anything. It could be at work that, you know, someone started a project at work or maybe a, a like, some club or social group or something like that at work or at school. Um, it could be like some people use the term intrapreneurship, which is like starting, you know, whatever new product or starting something new within an existing company. Um, and then of course, anything outside of work that someone's taken the lead on, if that's maybe they organize a meetup for whatever their hobby or interest is, or maybe they've done some freelance work on the side to like hone some skills that they didn't get to work on at their day job but mostly starting anything it could be you know could be totally independent it could be work or personal could be at school outside of that anything that's a signal that this person right. like doesn't just do like all right here are my tasks for the day and i did those and i go home and then I, you know sit there and do nothing 
So that that's number one. The other other thing that we look for, and this is mostly through the application process, is good written communication skills because I'm sure you know. Totally. If you, yeah. if you don't write well and clearly, you're going to have a hard time communicating at a remote company. So yeah, we sort of look through those in the application and we'll sometimes ask, you know, aside from just the cover letter, we'll ask some additional questions. So it gives us a chance to like see some of their of their writing and see how well they uh, explain things and communicate. Yeah, even these couple of years, there's this wave of, uh, you know, there's indie makers, indie hackers, no-code makers out there. And at the same time, it also, it came at the same time at the uh, trend of remote work. They file a very complimentary of each other. And I think this is something, it feels like kind of like bigger, like more people are able to create stuff and, or at least there's consciousness to, to get into that kind of mindset. You know, I think Naval Ravikant talked about this, about, oh, you have to create something, create something from zero to one. And I, I just feel like this is me kind of rambling here, but I just feel like this is a great sign for a future work because probably it's easier for people or for remote companies to evaluate candidates based on their ability and how they are self-reliant, so to say. Yeah, it's um, good to see someone like taking the initiative and then being responsible for something. So, like, exactly. Maybe it's maybe it sounds trivial, but you know, if you run a meetup group for whatever hiking or something, like it's like that's common <laughs> yeah. out here in the Bay Area. You know, you you have to decide where to go. You have to send the emails to remind everyone when it is and organize it. Like, yeah, maybe it's not the hardest thing in the world, but you have to be responsible and, you know, do it every month. So that's a good signal to me. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of younger people, I don't know if if it's great, but a lot of people think about starting something as something huge. Oh, let's say if to get something great in my resume, I have to create a, a huge site project. I have to create something from scratch to learn coding, which that's actually not the case. Just like you mentioned, just create a meetup meetup.com is literally there. You literally just do write letters in with your keyboards into columns. So to speak. So and I think, it's better if it's something you're interested in, right? Because exactly. then you'll stick with it and not just like, oh, I'm doing this because it'll look good on a resume, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I- exactly. Because if you're doing it only for the resume, it, it, it gets old. Yeah. So, yeah, I think this is super relevant, slightly very relevant to what we talked So Probably there's a lot of overlap here. But we also talk about hiring for potential is super hard for remote teams other than the, the thing that we talked about you know starting a side project or do something you just create something any other advice for real relatively inexperienced people that never work remotely before and want to find a remote job so even you know college grad and so on yeah it's definitely one of the kind of disappointing shortcomings of, of remote companies i think True. most uh most of them are, one, it's just hard to train someone remotely. You know, it's much easier if you're sitting next to each other. And then two, there are, this is changing, but there are only so many remote companies that are even big enough to have a, you know, learning and development team or whatever. Like maybe Automatic has one, but the vast majority don't. So yeah, that, that part is tough. Um, definitely getting any kind of experience you can beforehand, just in, I would say, in within your role is kind of what what's useful and you know maybe that's working at a more normal office job before or or interning 
but a lot of it you can you know you can learn online or do like you know either for yourself or like maybe pro bono for like a uh, a local business that you like you know maybe right. you're learning whatever seo so you just your favorite cafe you go to all the time you you know do some free work yeah. for them to to learn it and you know that also then shows you know that you can take initiative so like for us it's not about like i said it's kind of about those outcomes as opposed to like i don't really care where someone worked before or if their degree is in you know whatever the same field as their job is but you do want to know that they they can achieve these outcomes or that they're like on their way to being able to so you know you need some proof that they've done something similar in the past and that that could take a lot of forms it doesn't have to be that you did at a remote company or a really similar one but you do want to see that someone has, has done these sorts of things before right did you experience firsthand the difficulty of training someone remotely before yeah a bit of it i mean i guess when we started everyone was like there was still some sort of training you know yeah. but yeah we've we've tried to do it a little bit or have people move between roles where you know not not like a massive change between uh, teams or departments or something but just kind of smaller changes to the roles and realizing like it's really hard to like how do you help them get up to speed like it right. seems like it should be very doable and i think in an office maybe it would be more doable but you know for us it's like if we don't already have someone who knows about that that field or expertise then you know you're telling them to take an online class or i don't know it just feels <laughs> a little bit like we have no like it should be doable i want to help them i think they can get there with a little bit of help but then you feel like you have no resources to like make it happen or i don't know where to guide them to yeah. to kind of uh, bridge that gap so definitely a shortcoming uh, for us i don't know about other remote companies but i'd imagine they they face some of that mm-hmm. yeah honestly i feel like even in co-located companies coaching can still can still be an issue like even onboarding uh, new hires which kind of want to talk about in the next so like currently do you have some kind of onboarding process for new hires so let's say if someone get hired uh, in tortuga uh, tomorrow so what are the next steps for these people is there any like their uh, buddy system or something? Yeah, we, we do. It's, I guess that's another thing that's hard with, with remote work, right? Like you it's show really up for hard. your first day of work and like, what do you, where, what do you do? There's nowhere to go. Like you don't show up at the office and no one escorts you to your desk, you know? So <laughs> yeah. you just turn on Slack, I guess. So yeah, we, we've tried to make it a little less, uh, weird or make it kind of like an easier start for people. So yeah, we've got a bunch of kind of to-dos for them to get all their accounts set up, all that sort of routine stuff. Um, and then, yeah, we set them up with with a new hire buddy who's, we try to get someone who they won't necessarily work with every day just in their day-to-day work. So it gives them another another person that they have an excuse to like talk to, get to know, and you know they don't have to feel weird reaching out or anything. So, and then that person can answer some of the questions about the company, like, where do I find this information? How do I set up my direct deposit? That sort of thing. So helps to spread out some of the onboarding work between myself or general manager, the new hire buddy, like kind of gives them more, more people to, to talk to, more points of contact and uh, lessens the, the work on us. And then we've experimented with a few other things like I would send an introductory email that's like to introduce the person and also 
kind of hype them up and talk about why we hired them. You know, we want them, right. we want them to know like that we're excited and talk about all the awesome stuff they've done and why they, we think they're a good fit so that the rest of the team can get excited. Um, we've experimented with some like video all hands on Zoom, things like this, just to like, I don't know. So they get to see everyone's faces yeah. and, you know, we can all talk a little bit. It gets a little hectic trying to have too many people on a Zoom call, but, mm-hmm. you know, just want them to feel like they're showing up to a team that's like excited to meet them and, you know, real people, not just names in the, the side. So for, do you, do you, you kind of have like a basic wiki or documentation about the the current company? If, if yes, what are the tools that you are using for that? Yeah, we use uh, Notion is the, the main hub for most of the like kind of evergreen information. And then we also in Google Drive, we'll store a lot of our SOPs just because there's more, more screenshots and those might change more often. So we kind of section off some of that stuff there. And then Notion's more for like how certain things work, like, you know, setting whatever, getting set up with systems and stuff the Got first it. day. And we try to write a lot about like, how we operate and kind of our norms, uh, let's say around things like productivity or like, do I need to have Slack on my phone? Do I need to respond? Like how fast do I have to respond to emails? Like, do I need to leave this on 24 seven? Should I have my notifications on? So we try to tell people what, what boundaries are good to set. So right. that, you know, when you're new, you want to do everything and you might not feel comfortable ignoring messages until tomorrow or whatever. So we try to like let people know that that's okay and define those rules a little bit so they don't yeah. have to, I don't know, try to impress anyone or figure it out on their own over a couple months. We can just like tell them up front what's Or okay. feel lost. Yeah, they can feel lost sometimes. I, I just yeah. want to let you know, even sometimes in co-located companies, onboarding can still be an issue. Like you're still there in your seat and then, okay, who should I find and who should I look for? I mean, it's, I think it's still a bigger problem than everyone realized. It's just because like people are focused on the onboarding of remote companies. Oh, by the way, on the wiki stuff, you mentioned about the, the whole kind of like history of the company, the norms and what are you the one who maintains it? I've written a lot of it just because like needed to set the example or it yeah, was stuff yeah. like my job to figure out. Yeah. But yeah, we're we're getting better about having more people do it and I try to I try to uh remind people if they're like I don't know, sharing something that seems like, oh, this would be great to document to remind them like, hey, this would be great to have a notion. Why don't you add a page over a notion? So right, right, right. Trying to make sure everyone's doing it. Yeah, I think a documentation is really hard. I mean I've I've experienced it firsthand. It's really hard. Just like you mentioned, sometimes you just like small nudge, right? Hey, can you just put this on Notion? Because it's not like, it's not second nature for everyone to put this. I almost feel like you can actually, there should be like documentation as a service thing. Like, okay, here's the whole shit. Like, here's my company. Can you just create the whole wiki or process out of this and then outsource everyone? Because it's, it's really hard. Even we struggle from it from time to time, if not, almost all the time. I'm sorry to say this, <laughs> but yeah. So cool. Yeah. And it's hard if it's like, you know, sometimes you, you think like, Oh, we should have a page for this. And you know, you kind of have a, very yeah, yeah, rough exactly. draft, but it's not like, like the fidelity. Yet, like, but Yeah. Should you still post it just to like, I don't know, just have something out there or is it right. bad because it's not really done. I don't yeah. know. My, my uh, personal issue or personal problem with notion is that just like you mentioned like okay there's this thing 
Should I create a whole page about that? A whole section? Is, should I create a table on that? Should I create a chart? You know, the, 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 I love Notion, but the problem is that there's so many options there because it's so vast. I if you're not sure. So I want to move on to the, I think my favorite topic whenever I talk to every leaders in the podcast is leadership itself. So you shared some of your past emails to your teammates about some of their, well, first is decentralized leadership stuff and about your $1 million mistake, right? I want to start with the $1 million mistake first. Can you elaborate a bit more what was that and why did you decide to write the email to, and send to every of your teammates and what crossed your mind back then? Yeah, so this was back when uh, I was stu- still do- doing all of our inventory ordering. Um, and we're kind of in the middle of redesigning all of our products. This is when we started hiring a lot of people and we were really rebooting the whole company. So basically what happened in the process of that is the new products, new designed product, uh, newly redesigned products, new website, all that was was ready for a launch in the fall. And the sales of the old products were you know, trying to time them so it would sell out just as the new stuff launched. But that timing didn't quite work out. So we basically had a bunch of inventory of the older products left over as the new ones were just about to be ready. So we did, we did a big discounted sale, sold off as much of them as we could. We ended up having to sell some through Amazon. And it just basically dragged out. Instead of us being sold out right when we wanted to, we we're selling for another six or 12 months kind of in some different places. So it was just wasted money distraction. Obviously, if you have a sale, you know, you'd make less money than you would have otherwise. So it cost us some money there. So basically what I did was I wrote an email to the team kind of saying like, hey, here's, here's what happened. Here's what we thought. Here's why I was wrong here. Like, here's what it cost us. And the point of doing all that was to kind of lead by example and convey to the team that we should have a a culture where like mistakes are okay, but when we make a mistake, we should own up to it, um, share it with people so that like, you know, we can kind of learn in public and then hopefully not make that same mistake again. So I wanted to make it kind of like normalized. So if I can share my mistakes that are, you know, that one was like a bigger dollar amount than most people will be in a position to, to make. So like, I'm going to share my mistake, even though, you know, I'm the boss or whatever. I made a big one. I can put a dollar amount to it. So yeah, when you are thinking about like, oh, should I do this? It might cost us, you know, some much smaller amount of money. Like you feel more, more able to take a chance if it's like, yeah. you know, a smart risk or whatever. We're always guessing in business, right? You're never sure. So I wanted people to feel okay with like taking chances, you know, making mistakes, but have some good, good process around it so that we weren't just like, screwing up and wasting money you don't want to go the other direction either right right i really love this piece because i think this is something that rarely talked about like how you encourage people to it's a very concrete example of how you can encourage your team members to not afraid of uh taking risks and especially not afraid to make mistakes and i feel like it's especially important in remote settings because honestly, you don't see each other, right? You don't see each other. I mean, if you make a mistake, I mean, at least in a collocated company, let's say you're a team of 15 people, you intend to 15, but okay, okay, I messed up on this part. 
you go to the office, you see your boss face to face. I think at one time you'll be okay, boss, sorry. And then you can just talk it out, right? But remote companies, like nobody knows what everyone is doing to a certain extent. So I feel like this is a really concrete example. I really like it. And the email is very well written. And did you write the email like almost like after the whole uh, fiasco happened or like immediately after that or? Yeah, I think once I kind of figured out like, you know, at the time we're sort of trying to solve the problem and all right, how do we sell these off? Let's put them on Amazon. You know, you're kind of doing the work and then it was a little bit after that I tried to like, you know, do kind of a a post-mortem and figure out like, all right, what's, what was I wrong about here? You know, it started as I'm trying to do it for myself and figure out like, oh, how do I not ever do that again? And then you start making some notes and then I decided like it would make sense to to share with everyone and it would be a good example of like a very big version then people would feel more comfortable sharing, you know, even small uh, mistakes or whatever. So yeah, kind of went from like, doing some work for myself to sharing it with the team. And then later I just posted it on, on my blog. So I don't know, maybe that, that makes it an even bigger example because I shared it not just with the team, but with right. anyone who wants to read it. Yeah. Do you regularly do postmortems on, you know, experiments or things that happened and didn't work out well? Is it something that you, Tortuga's team, do a lot? We do, and I want to. I'm trying to do it even more, but yeah, we do a lot of you know, you might run a marketing campaign, or you know, we're always kind of tweaking different things on the website. So, you know, you can be informed and think, like, hey, this this change is probably going to work, but you should still always go back and uh, kind of run the numbers and see if it mattered. So, um, yeah, we we try and do that and then send a kind of summary out to everyone. So, even if it's uh, let's say it's about the website and you know, we send that out to everyone. Yeah, lots of people, like, that's not part of their job, but still good for them to see, like, what other people are working on, what we're learning, and, you know, there might be something applicable to their work, too. I, I think that's a really great process to have. And like you mentioned, like, even if other team members don't know that this thing started, but at least they know that this thing ended. Oh, this happened before. And you yeah. can, like, use a future reference for any other uh, project. Like you said, in a remote team, you could like, you know, you could announce, hey, we made this change. And then no one ever hears no anything one else, about it. Yeah. And if it went badly, you could just like, Ooh, I'm not going to mention it. If it went well, you can like talk about it. But, exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we don't want to be in that habit. It, it gets back to the whole documentation culture again. So another email that I found fascinating that, of course, you shared with your teammates and the world is on the topic of decentralized decision-making and decentralized leadership. Can you uh, share a bit more about that? And again, what made you decide to share that? Yeah, and the the size that we are, this is kind of going back to the, like, you know, the, the nature of the company and sort of leaning into strengths or, or away from weaknesses. But yeah, being a, being a team where until recently we were basically completely flat, everyone reported it to me, you know, we were whatever, 10 people or so it becomes, it's a hard stage where there's not like, it's not like there's a bunch of individual teams in the company with their own manager and then those managers reported to me or anything. So it was very easy for me to be the bottleneck for basically everything because everyone was reporting yep. it to me. So like, 
it's great for me to be able to see and touch like every aspect of the business. That's nice, but it can kind of go the opposite way too, where like you allow yourself to become the bottleneck because there's like no one to uh, defer to or no other managers at least. So um, it's something that we've been, we've put a lot of emphasis on, especially the last couple of years that, you know, we've grown the team, people have been at the, at the company longer, so they're better able to make good decisions. So I'm trying as much as possible to keep decision-making at the individual level and providing all the support we can as uh, uh, by uh, either me doing it or uh, our general manager. And, you know, we want to ask the questions like we talked about earlier and like provide the guidance to people. Sometimes we need to set, you know, maybe a company level goal or OKR, but as much as possible, like our goal should not be to like have everyone bring all the decisions to us and then us make every decision, but to help the rest of the team make those decisions on their own because one, they're the one doing the work. So they probably have the most information and um, like I'm trying to remove remove myself as the bottleneck where I think a lot of small businesses remote or not just like you know any small business I think a lot get kind of stuck at the stage we're at where you know the the founder the CEO whatever they you know they're across the whole company they do a little bit of everything but then they never figure out how to get to that next level where they like hand off responsibilities hand off decision making and like stuff happens without them knowing about it or controlling it mm-hmm. so I've always been like, not worried about it, but no, just knowing that that can be an issue and trying to like figure out how we'll work at the next, uh, next level of the company and try to build towards that and not let myself be like the bottleneck and, and impede our, our progress as a whole company. Got it. Did you find it hard to do that? Like not um, directly making decisions and not um, having the full picture of everything or it's more like it's pretty easy for you? It was probably harder when we first started out because it's like, you know, the company's your baby and it's very yeah. small. And, you know, uh, at that point, it's like your first couple hires, you, even if the company's going well, there's still some element of like, uh-oh, if I let other people make a decision, it all might fall apart. And then like, you know, I didn't have control over our success or failure or whatever. But, but as we've grown, we, you know, have been, have kept hiring. I've been able to work with everyone like, for a long time in one-on-ones and working together. So uh, I think now we're at a place where it feels much easier because one, people have been with the company longer and we've also just established more of like the culture and how we do things. So they can make decisions that aren't just like, like one, they don't think they need me for every decision. And two, they know how to make good decisions without like always needing my help. Um, You know, they, they're more equipped or I'm, you know, doing the work to, to help equip them to make those decisions. So I think it has gotten, uh, it's, it's hard when you start out, of course, but uh, it's gotten much easier over time. Yeah. I always found this transition from uh, entrepreneur to executive, so to speak, is, is interesting because when you're entrepreneur, it's really hard. You want to do everything. You want to know everything. Cool. So my, Last question. I think this is the first time I asked this question to podcast guests, I think. So let's say that you are thrown into a situation to help transition a co-located company to a remote company, whether as an advisor or you work there, what will be the first couple of steps you're going to do? Transitioning sounds like it would be very hard. I don't know. I don't know if anyone's uh, done it, but would love 
Exactly. I'm not sure too. Yeah. Learn about that process. Yeah. Yeah. I think the first thing would be, so it kind of goes to, uh, I was talking a minute ago about, I'm always sort of visualizing like the next step for for Tortuga and how we're going to look at that stage. So I can be, you know, building towards that and not just getting caught up in today. I think you'd have to do the same for, for a company transitioning to remote and think about like, all right, how does a fully remote company need to operate to, to work well? Um, and then start installing that. So I think the biggest thing there would be a lot of the stuff we've talked about, like communication, documentation, having a, like we use Asana for project management, but having a single source of, of truth where you can go back to and know like, what's the status, who's doing what, when's it due? Um, because there's just so much in that communication, documentation, et cetera, uh, realm that like, it's less important at a co-located company or you can just kind of gloss over it and like, yeah, I don't need to like, you know, it's not written down anywhere, but I know, you know, I go and ask this person if I have a question about this topic. So you can't quite do that as easily in a remote team. So I would kind of envision how, how a good remote company works and then just start installing all of those processes, even if you don't like need them in the, the office version of the company. Right. Kind of like reverse engineer it for lack of better words. I think. Okay, Fred, again, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating chat. I, I learned a lot from this uh, conversation. And where can people learn more about Tortuga and find you online? Sure. Well, thanks for, for having me. It was a fun, uh, fun conversation and got, to, got some you. new questions. So it's always fun when there's uh, you know, some new stuff to talk about. Yeah, you can check us out. Uh, website is tortugabackpacks.com. And if you want to see any of my other writing, where I write about uh, basically all the topics we, yep. we talked about today, uh, that's just at my name, friendparada.com. And yeah, check us out and uh, yeah, reach out or email me if you have any questions. Yep. For listeners, don't forget to check it out. If you can find the link in the show notes, Fred, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And that's it for another episode of Outside the Valley brought to you by ARC. We created this podcast with the hope that in each episode, you can learn something new from other remote startup people. So if you have any feedback or suggestions, please don't hesitate to reach out to me at jovian at arc.dev. It's J-O-V-I-A-N at A-R-C dot D-E-V. Or you can find us on Twitter at arc.dev. See you next week with another episode of Outside the Valley and ciao.